as a kid, you know, I hated steamed spinach and it was like, this is so disgusting. But now as an adult, I love fresh spinach in, in salads. I love, I put spinach in my smoothies. Like there are a lot of great ways to eat spinach. And, you know, I'm sort of like, you know, rather than force the disgusting one, like why not embrace the delicious ones? You know, and, and I think that's true for environmental ideas is that, I don't know, I mean, the environmental movement has tried to force the, the disgusting versions a few times. And I'm sort of like, well, let's frame it in the positives. Like, let's let's eat the delicious ones. Often, I've found the moments in life we most remember are the ones filled with emotion. Something that hits us hard in the gut sticks with us. It changes how we think and even sometimes how we act. Alex Honnold is a climber. His meticulous approach to his craft is impressive in itself. Watching his thorough planning of the pathways he'll take on his ascents inspires awe. Each and every move is so carefully laid out. Even hundreds of meters off the ground, they're automatic. In the documentary Free Solo, which follows his ascent of El Capitan in Yosemite National Park, he describes that feeling. It's amazing to think that he's undertaken the climb so many times in his mind that it's become simply a sequence of little steps, rather than a death-defying feat that only one human being has been capable of in all of history. It's not the rational, logical thought process that sticks with us as we watch him plan and complete his climb. Instead, it's a feeling. We're terrified as we look through the lens at Alex so high up. It's a visceral sensation, and it sticks with us. In many ways, First Things First is a show about feelings. It's a show that suggests if we want to change things for the better, we have to do more than think through the problem we're dealing with. We have to find a solution that inspires us. This season, First Things First is taking a new angle. Interviews are still the focus, and we've got some great guests lined up. But each episode focuses on the idea that inspiration is the key to change. The environmental movement did a few things. In America, it sparked the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency. The results are profound. After decades of pollution through industrial dumping and waste, America's air, lakes, and rivers recovered mightily. But at the same time, the world has gotten dirtier during these same decades. Humankind's voracious consumption has accelerated. There's no question that great steps have been taken to address the issues, but there is so much more to be done. Millions of people are working to make change and move us towards a more sustainable future, but there are billions who don't feel that same urgency. They may be preoccupied with basic concerns like food, shelter, and safety. But on the other hand, almost half of Americans agree that humans have something to do with climate change, but almost 2 in 10 believe human activity plays little to no role at all. We're not moving fast enough to deal with the challenges at hand, but we can't force people to change their minds. It's time for a new approach. We talk about ecological approaches to climate change, but we need to rely on more than just logic. Emotions drive change. So we need a new word. Maybe it's time to take an eco-emotional approach to the challenge. We need to inspire people to change through emotion, not just logic. When Tesla set out to tackle sustainable mobility, they did so by making an electric car that didn't look or work like anything before it. They made it the most exciting driving experience imaginable. They led with emotion and inspiration. We need people to inspire us to change in ways like this. This podcast is about those people, the ones who take on difficult issues and inspire others to see things in a new way.
Today we're starting with an unexpected perspective, Alex Honnold. Alex began his career by choosing to climb rock faces the vast majority of us would never dream of attempting. But as his career progressed, his passion has grown to include the greater context of his craft. The Honnold Foundation is dedicated to promoting solar energy for a more equitable world. It brings resources to global projects that champion solar power as an alternative energy source. It's clear through this conversation that Alex sees the big picture. It's fascinating to see someone whose mastery of a specific craft allows them to better understand how we can address broader issues, in this case, sustainable energy. There's a meticulousness in the Foundation's philosophy and activities that reflects his approach to climbing. And it's this dedication and passion that's so inspiring. But climbing is where it started, so let's start there. Yeah, I think that for me, it's also been pretty easy to to make that position of climbing first because I have so few other responsibilities. You know, basically, I had a, an easy enough upbringing. I have no family that I have to support. I don't have to caretake or anything. You know, basically, like no one depends upon me, and so I've been able to just pursue my passion, which, which is climbing. And so, I mean, I know that not that many people are are lucky enough to be in that position. I I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's easy to be totally carefree when you actually do have no responsibilities. But then on the other hand, that's also, I mean, that is kind of a life design issue, you know, to to structure your life in a way that, you know, like I haven't been paying anything off my whole life. You know, like I have no debt. I have, you know, no obligation to work, nothing like that. I mean, I guess my life could have been designed in a different way where I could have finished a degree at university, had a ton of student loans, felt obligated to pay them off, taken a random job, you know, and sort of pushed the climbing to the side because I was trying to jump through society's hoops, you know? So, so I don't know. I mean, on the one hand, I'm like, oh, you know, I designed my life this way. On the other hand, I'm also just incredibly fortunate that I had that opportunity to do that. When Alex talked about the sacrifices he made to climb, it struck a chord with me. A big part of what we're told about sustainability is that it involves sacrifice. We have to accept less in order to do more. But is that necessarily the case? Or more specifically, is this the right framing of the question? What if it's not so much about accepting less as it is about doing what we need to do in order to have more in a larger sense? The conventional wisdom is we need to have more in order to live better. But why do we think that way? By what logic did we determine that a better life is one that gives us more square footage to live in and more stuff? Alex chose a different life early on. He saw his decisions not as choices to settle for less, but as opportunities to focus on what mattered most to him. It's not all sacrifice. And eventually he did buy a house, but those early days show us a different take on what it means to do more with less. Just to be clear, I am living in a house in Las Vegas now. I've been mostly based out of the house for the last couple of years. But I lived out of my ProMaster and I lived out of a smaller van before that for over a decade. And I definitely never saw it as a sacrifice. I saw it as an intentional choice that enabled me to do the things that I wanted to do, which is basically climb full time and, and travel between climbing areas. And so even though, you know, I mean, I, I loved houses. I mean, I like having Wi-Fi. I like having a shower. I like, you know, the comfort of a home. But I preferred having the ability to to travel nonstop and to climb nonstop and just the low overhead. I mean, honestly, it's not like I was making a lot of money or anything. So living out of the car was just a perfect way to do exactly what I wanted to do every single day. So I, I definitely never saw it as a sacrifice. I think actually one of the biggest benefits of living in the van is just the way it focuses your life on exactly what you're trying to do, which 
you know, I noticed that because now living in a house, it's easy for me to wake up and then sort of putter around the house and like clean things up and, you know, take your dishes out, put them away. Like just, you know, your day can kind of disappear with like mundane household things. But when you're living in a car, you wake up in whatever location you plan to be in and then you immediately do the thing that you're there to do. You know, there's there's very little maintenance. There's just like way less puttering around, you know, and you're in such a small space. It kind of forces you to get out and, and do things. So you just wind up, you know, adventuring in nature more and, and like doing the, the things that you intend to do. As we go through life, our priorities change. We can't be single minded forever. Once we become entangled in the relationships that define our lives, we adjust to the needs of those around us. That recognition forces us to think bigger. It challenges the core of what we believe. For Honold, this moment began to unfold as he became a world-famous climber. That ascent, if you will, led to a shift in focus. It's a question of balancing what you love for yourself and doing more for the world around you. I think that's kind of a a common path for people where, you know, when you're young and hungry, you're just kind of charging ahead, doing your thing. And then once you achieve a certain degree of success, it's easier to look around and be like, you know, I probably should be doing something a little more helpful. Like it's not really appropriate to just charge ahead blindly forever. When I started the foundation, I was basically just searching, you know, I was searching the internet. I was searching the world for environmental projects that also improved standard of living, that helped human populations in some ways. Basically because I cared about the environment, but I also sort of realized that, you know, having gone on certain expeditions, I realized that in some communities in the world, people will cut down, you know, the last tree on earth if it means boiling water for their family. And that's totally appropriate that, you know, that makes sense that people always meet their basic needs first. And so I felt like any kind of environmental protection also had to help people meet their basic needs because, you know, there are so many people living with hardship in the world. And, you know, basically they're never going to care about the environment until living is easier for them. And so, you know, I was looking for projects that fit those two criteria and, and they all, they just always wound up being solar projects, energy access projects. After several years of, you know, always gravitating towards solar projects, we just explicitly made it our, our mission statement. And something that, you know, there's always this conversation about global, local, and you definitely have a global focus. What's that relationship for you between those two things? I wouldn't say we have a global focus, or I, I guess we're just sort of open to anything. And so over the years, uh, we were split half domestic, half abroad, uh, partially because, I mean, I like doing domestic projects. I like working in my local communities. I like doing things close to home because, you know, partially it's just nice to physically go to a project and, and see how it's implemented and, and meet the people that it affects. But, you know, it's just nice to to know that you've helped your local community. But at the same time, money goes much further abroad. And so you can have a much greater impact, especially in terms of human lives affected abroad. And I felt like that was important because I personally see human lives as all, you know, all the same. Like we're all humans. We all we all have the same, you know, desires and opportunity and um, you're the same potential anyway. And so I felt like doing projects abroad, you're just able to help far more people. And so that, that was important to me as well. And so as you get get into then, you know, now at this point, you're actively working with you know, organizations around the world. And as you said, sort of whatever kind of makes sense. But some of the language that describes them as bold and ethical organizations that are driving innovation in the solar industry. 
So could you just tell us maybe a couple of those that um, I, I know that it's sort of like picking your favorite child, but you know, is there a couple that right now in this moment stand out for you as you know, really powerful examples of of, the, of this thing in action that's working? Well, yeah. So, I mean, my, f- <laughs> when you talk about picking favorite children, so my, my favorite child is, is a domestic organization called Grid Alternatives in the U.S. And I've been supporting them since the very beginning. And, and now we've committed multi-year grants to both Grid Alternatives and Grid Tribal, which does the same kind of work on, on the tribal nations in the U.S. And so Grids has this win-win-win model where they're putting solar in low-income communities, which is good for the environment, good for the community, you know, good for the homeowners. It's uh, mostly grid-tied solar, so it's basically just home PV systems like photovoltaic panels on somebody's home that's tied into the grid, which is pretty straightforward. But then they're, they also have a job training component where one of the years our grant was used to support this AmeriCorps project they had where they have kids who need job training in an industry learning how to install solar on people's homes who need help paying utility bills, basically. And so it's all win-win where you're like, oh, people who need jobs are doing the right kind of work to help make the world a better place. And so I've done a handful of grid installs. Uh, I was doing them in North Valley, which is uh, like my local community around Sacramento, California. And then I think that that homeowner was like a widowed uh, ex priest or something you know basically it was an elderly man living on a fixed income the sort of person for whom it really matters to no longer have a utility bill like he's not making a lot of money and you know it helps to not be paying a power bill i mean i just did this project and i was like this is a big impact on his life it's you know it's good for the the local community i mean basically it's like slowly greening the grid which is important i don't know everything about it i was like this is this is pretty sweet You know, I, I think what gets me so excited about you know what you're doing is the fact that you know you, you did something that most people who don't even understand your sport were inspired by and move them in their own ways in their own lives, and then you've you've kind of parlayed that into uh, a platform that draws attention to an issue, and then a way to connect that inspiration or that that energy that you create through that inspiration into projects that are actually making a you know, a difference at, at whatever scale, they're making a change in a really kind of tangible way. And so for you, like, what's the, what's the role of inspiration in all this as far as trying to deal with these environmental and social justice issues? I mean, I, I think it's important for sure. And part of the reason my foundation is public is because I recognize that, that it is helpful to have some inspirations. You know, I mean, I consider just doing all my, all my donating privately and just keeping it all sort of under wraps because in a lot of ways that's simpler you know i don't have to like run a foundation and in theory i could still be doing roughly the same amount of of good work with with my money but i realized that i kind of had this opportunity to do it publicly and make it a little bit bigger of a thing and hopefully draw in more funding that way and, and just have a bigger impact and and i felt like sort of obligated to do that because you know if i had the potential to do more to have a, a bigger positive effect by being public about it, then I was like, well, that's, that seems like the obvious, you know, I'm, I'm obligated to do that. You know, and in some ways a foundation like mine is probably most useful because of inspiration, you know, like just to show people that it is possible to, to have a personal impact like that and that they should be trying to do their own thing in their own way. I, I don't know. 
you know, I don't want to like overstate the importance of a thing like that, but I do think that realistically that that probably is one of the big impacts is just reminding people that like you can do something like this as well. And frankly, you should be doing something like this, you know, in your own capacity. And so just jumping back a little bit to the person you were helping in Sacramento with their house who was looking not to pay utility bill. Is that what you mean by solar energy creating equity? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that that's a perfect example of, of energy access being, being an equity issue. I mean, because normally in the U.S., when you think about solar, you think of, of you know, rich people or well-off people putting solar on their homes because most people think of solar as relatively expensive, though the price has been dropping exponentially, basically. And that's kind of true, and, and that is fundamentally unfair, you know, because basically the people who need the economic benefit the least are the ones who are, who are receiving it. You know, I mean, like so many things in life, if you have access to capital, you can invest in your home with something like solar, which has a great return over the years. And so basically you wind up saving a bunch of money, even though you didn't need to to begin with. That's always the thing in life. It's like, well, if you already have money, then it's easy to keep making more. But if you don't have any, it's uh, it's pretty hard. How do you connect the sort of need at an individual level where... Like obviously a not-for-profit can come in and, and look for those opportunities where individuals in need can be provided with these solutions that help to work towards some level of equity. On the other hand, there's this, you know, there's other players and we're talking about systemic change. So there's government players, there's corporate players. Like how do you feel that those pieces have to move or work together if we're going to you know, scale these solutions to, to reach more people and, and, and ideally create more equity? I mean, if I knew that, I'd be running for president or something. I, I think in some ways, you know, I, I'm sitting here in Canada and, you know, it's it, living in Canada and seeing America. Like, like we basically, you turn on the TV in Canada and it's it's America. Everything comes from America. And so you, you're just so heavily influenced by it. And from here, it's such a, like, frankly, a mind fuck to see a lot of what's happening there in terms of politics and the connection between, you know, quote unquote, corporate greed and government corruption and so it's like, it feels like we're, we're, we're depending on systemic change when it's a dumpster fire, you know? It's like, I guess for me, it's, it's yeah, kind of a question yeah. of, okay, we can't leave it to the to the parents or the, the adults anymore, so, so to speak. Like we got to, you know, back to your point about starting at an individual level and grassroots. And then, you know, it seems like you, you're kind of managing to tap into some of these things to pull them together in a way that is making actual on the ground change. Yeah. I mean, that's true. And, and, you know, I think that's inspiring, you know, when I hear about an individual having an impact. But the reality is that if I summed up the total impact of all the work that I've done to the foundation and all the money that I've donated, it's still trivial in the face of climate change and the issues that are facing humanity, which, you know, I think about sometimes and it depresses me a little bit, but it just comes back to systemic change again. I've got a whole list of things that I feel like an individual can do to try to minimize their environmental impact, to try to, you know, minimize their harm in the world. But I actually kind of think that, you know, when we're talking about design and systems design, I kind of think that the burden shouldn't really be on the individual. And and that's exactly what you mean about how it's so hard for the individual to do the right thing. And I think that the emphasis on individual actions has been largely put upon us by people who don't want systemic change. You know, like a company like ExxonMobil is kind of like, oh, well, you know, if you turn your air conditioner down a little bit, then you can save the world because, you know, they want to stay in business doing exactly what they do for as long as possible. 
you know, I'm not saying that individuals shouldn't do what they can and shouldn't try to have an impact on the world, but it's just, I do think that the solutions have to be way bigger than that. I'm starting to think that that the real role in individual action isn't so much that, that you can save the world that way, but it's that through individual action, you sort of empower yourself to take on the bigger issues. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, I think about it as training for sport, you know, since I've been an athlete for my whole life, basically. But, you know, basically you start with the small steps and like build up, you know, like train. And so, you know, by taking individual actions, you're sort of empowering yourself. That idea of the balance between a need for systemic and individual change was, when I came to it in my own life, an important insight. I've been thinking of change as an individual, that if we can inspire individuals to change, then big shifts would follow. But Alex is right. We need both systemic change and individual change. We can't expect everyone to take individual action on climate change if their basic needs aren't being met. Those with greater access to resources must lead. It's our job to take responsibility for our actions. But the hope in what he said for me is inspiring, that small steps can add up so long as we have a vision of our overall goal. When it comes down to it, climbing an impossible mountain is really nothing more than a bunch of small finger holds. So that's where I can start. That's the end of the first episode of this new season of First Things First. This podcast is designed to test the hypothesis that meaningful change happens when we give people better and more inspiring ways to change. It's a hypothesis with many challenging questions. Are we suggesting we can live a life of joy and inspiration and still save our environment? Are we suggesting that a more sustainable future does not require sacrifice? What does it mean to use inspiration to drive change? How can we measure it? Is it even possible? How can we be sure that we remain critical and not turn away from the many layers of this complex challenge? Over the next few episodes, we talk to people who bring about change through inspiration while grappling with the complexity of the issues they take on. Both the inspiration and complexity take many forms. Connie Walker makes podcasts that deal with the issue of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. Bjarke Engels designs buildings with unexpected positive impacts. Bruce Mao has built an entire philosophy of how design is a systematic method for optimistic problem solving. These guests and more show us how we can bring about fundamental change to the way we live through the power of storytelling, creativity, and inspiration. I look forward to exploring these questions with you. I'm not sure where we'll end up, but I know we'll have some interesting conversations along the way. In the meantime, to learn more about Alex and the Honnold Foundation, visit honnoldfoundation.org. That's H-O-N-N-O-L-D foundation.org. First Things First is produced by Max Cotter. The Frontier Media team includes Brian Scholas, Paul Kawai, Tristan Marantos, Hannah Vance, Jessica Long, and Sarah Paul. First Things First is a partnership between Frontier Design and the Association of Registered Graphic Designers. RGD is Canada's largest professional association for graphic design professionals with 4,000 members, including firm owners, freelancers, managers, in-house designers, educators, and students. Frontier is a purpose design office. We help organizations define and express their purpose in clear and inspiring ways. Learn more about RGD at rgd.ca and more about Frontier at frontier.is. Mm-hmm.